I wasn't muted. I had it turned off. I don't trust these things. So Natalie just about covered everything. So uh, y'all ready for lunch? <laughs> Too bad. That's not how this works. Um, since y'all are probably wondering, no, there's nothing wrong with Danny. Um, he and I had talked a couple of years ago about uh, me being able to offer him some vacation time on some Sundays so that he didn't have to be here all the time. Uh, because unless you have filled the pulpit, you have no idea how tiring this job is. <laughs> unless you have worn the title of pastor, you have no clue how tiring this can be. Um, and so uh, we had set up a couple of days to um, to have me fill in for him. Memorial Day was the first one, and we all know how well that worked um, when uh, my gallbladder decided to short out and uh, throw a temper tantrum and get the pancreas all upset, and Danny had to cover for me. So much for that idea. And then he had to have surgery on his eye, so I covered for him a couple of weeks ago. Well, this morning, um, he had asked me back, like I said, a couple of months ago, if I would cover the 4th of July. Um, he is not out of town. He is just resting. He is He's actually following the command to honor the Sabbath, keep it holy, and to rest, and just to trust that God is going to provide for him today. So he would appreciate y'all's prayers, not because there's anything wrong, but just because he gets tired, just like the rest of us do. Um, that being said, when I was here last, just two weeks ago, three weeks ago, three, two weeks ago, I don't know, they all bleed together. Um, we looked at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 through 17. And just to, to kind of recap for you, because you, you guys, have you caught on that I do this yet? I go through a whole book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Um, there's a couple of reasons that I do that. Number one, it keeps me from cherry-picking verses uh, that I like and skipping ones that I don't like. Not every pastor does that. I know who I am. It would be really easy for me to preach on my hobby horses and not preach on the tough stuff that we need to hear. Okay? And number two, it keeps me from preaching to the congregation. Now, what I mean by that is if I happen to know that there's a situation going on between these couple of people or in this family, it would be really easy for me in my humanity to pick a passage that deals with those people or that situation. That's not my job. My job is to preach the whole counsel of God's Word, whether I like it or not. Now, you might find this a little bit uncomfortable, but there are some parts of God's Word I don't really like. They are uncomfortable to me. They are painful. They step on my toes. And so I have to discipline myself to cover all of it. So when we looked at verses 12 through 17, we were reminded of all the stuff that the writer of Hebrews had said from chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 12, that we need to consider since we are adopted as God's children and since we have this big cloud of witnesses that surround us, and we have the suffering that Jesus went through in order to secure our salvation, we need to remember that we need to buck up and do what God's called us to do. Quit dilly-dallying. Quit sitting around on our haunches. The, the writer uses the word strengthen yourselves. Strengthen your weak wrists, your weak arms, and your weak knees so that they aren't sprained and thrown off. And so now we have more excuse not to do what God's called us to do. Strengthen ourselves. Put the fleshly desires. And I'm going to tell you what our biggest fleshly desire is. You might not believe me. Okay? But I'm going to tell you this because I have fallen to it already this morning. You know what the biggest fleshly desire is? Comfort. Comfort. At 6 o'clock this morning when I knew my alarm clock was going to go off, you know what I did when it went off? I had snooze. <laughs> I hit snooze and I woke up at 6.30. 
Comfort is our biggest fleshly desire. We want to be safe, we want to be secure, and we want to be comfortable. And we need to get out of that and get uncomfortable because the work that God's called us to do, quite frankly, is uncomfortable. We're supposed to go share the gospel with the world. That means, by the way, share the gospel with the world. Raise your hand if you're in a Baptist church. That's all of you. Okay. All right. So we have this idea, share the gospel with the world. That means we send people on missions. No, that means you share the gospel with the lady who's checking out your groceries at Walmart or Rouse's or Winn-Dixie. That means you share the gospel with the waitress when you go out to lunch. Don't steal her time. Don't make her miss other customers because you've got to give her a, a 350,000 word essay on what the gospel means. But we have a responsibility to share the gospel with people. Do you know what people have? Yeah. People have baggage. People are messy. We are messy. We like to forget about that. You know, I, I don't have any problems. It's all those other people that have problems. Right? The work we've been called to do requires us to get uncomfortable. Well, today, July 4th, seemed like a good day to cover verses 18, 18 through 29. Because in 18 through 29, the writer of Hebrews takes all of that stuff that he told us in 12 through 17, which linked back all the way to chapter 10. He, he told us the what we needed to do. Well, here he's telling us the why we need to do it. What is the... What is the reason that we can do this? What is the foundation for us to have the strength to do this? So I'm going to ask you to do something that I often do. Uh, in, in light of the fact that this is God's Word, not Bill's Word, I'm going to ask you all to stand up while, I, while we read together. Um, I know for a fact that there are hard copy Bibles in the pews now. So if you would like to grab one, pull it up and, and look for Hebrews chapter 12. Verses 18 through 29, I'll wait. Or if you're one of these technological people like uh, Mrs. Thomas over here who's got her phone opened up to the right passage already, that's perfectly fine too. Hear the word of the Lord. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice, whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks better speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth but the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Father, as we hear your word this morning, as we worship you this morning, help us to remember that we are called, we are commanded, we are expected as your children to offer you worship that is acceptable. We are required to offer you worship that comes from a place of awe and reverence and respect. 
And Father, most of all, we are not to have any, anything stand between us and you when it comes to that worship. Father, help us to be good worshipers today. And we pray this because of Jesus and his sacrifice. Amen. Please have a seat. Until the end of the service, that's the last time you have to stand up. So, in the, the translation that I read today, um, that's the English Standard Version, the very first word in verse 29 is one of those really important interpretive words. And I told you guys previously, and I get a chuckle from people when I say it, when you're reading and you come across these conjunctions, these these linking words that tie ideas together that you need to understand what ideas are being tied together. And the reason for that is because the most important interpretive principle when it comes to Scripture is context. Context, context, context. You need to know what's being said and why it's being said. Well, at the beginning of this verse, verse 18, we have the English word for. The English word for, F-O-R. Um, the, the word therefore is one of those that's it's kind of an if-then. If this, then that. The word for is linguistically very close to the word because. We could put the word because in the same sense that when your child says, why do I have to do this? Your answer is because. Because I said so. That's right. Because the last time I checked, parent, child. That's why. And I love doing that to my kids. Um, but anyways, the, the writer of Hebrews is telling his audience that all of the previous things that he's shared with them, all of the things he's commanded them, are because of what he's about to tell them, of what he's about to share with them. Um, I, I told you this, how all of these things tie together from chapter 10 all the way through to where we are now. We have a cloud of witnesses. Now, when you hear that phrase, cloud of witnesses, I know what my brain thinks. I'm going to guess your brain thinks this way too because of the English language. A cloud of witnesses. We have an audience. We have a group of people who are watching us run the race, right? Well, kind of. See, here's the thing. When we're called to be a witness, we're supposed to do what? We're supposed to tell people. Witness is a legal term. It's one who testifies to what they've seen. We have a cloud of witnesses. Okay, let me tell you, it may break your heart, but, but Samson and, and, and David and all of the other saints that are listed in that cloud of witnesses, they are not necessarily up in heaven cheering for you. Well, you could hear a pin drop in here right now. Let me say that again. They are not up in heaven cheering for you. They're not your witnesses. They're God's witnesses. We have their history preserved right here in Scripture to tell us what faith looks like. To tell us how our lives are supposed to look. Let me ask you a question. Let's go with Samson because he's one that's easy to remember, right? He is one of those heroes of the faith listed in Hebrews. He was, he was set apart by God before his birth because he was the answer to prayer. And his parents were told, you will consecrate him. You will never cut his hair. He will not touch dead things. He will not drink the fruit of the vine. He will stay away from all of these restrictions because he was set apart wholly unto the Lord. How many of those things did he keep? One. He didn't cut his hair. Everything else he violated. Did God honor that? A little. He left him his strength. He obviously was lacking in wisdom. Because he fell in love with a girl who was a Gentile, and the Jews weren't supposed to do that. Not a racial thing, a religious thing. 
I'm speaking as a man here. The reason that the Hebrew men were told not to take Gentile wives is because, guys, we're spineless when it comes to keeping our wives satisfied. Right? When she says, hey, you know, I'd really like to go spend the weekend with my parents. Okay. Even though you know that her parents are going to take her to the high place to worship their gods. Okay. And so he wanted this Gentile woman. And finally, the plot comes out. She wanted to figure out why he was so strong. And so she winds up cutting his hair. And he's captured and he's beaten and he loses his his strength is gone. And he is in the worst possible condition. They gouge his eyeballs out. And they lead him around as a trophy. Look at the mighty Samson. Look at the, look at the specimen who's blessed by his God. All because he lived a sinful life. And so at the end of that life, in one final act of repentance, Samson prays, God, I'm sorry. Give me the strength. Give me the strength to avenge you. And he brought the house down. We have that story. Why? So we can learn from it. So we can see that our faith is going to be something that's going to be tried and tested. And it's not going to be easy for us to do. We have Jesus who lived that example of perfection and holiness for us. And I know everyone has said, well, Jesus was the Son of God. We can't live like that. Do you even try? Let me answer that question for you. I don't. Not all the time. Because I'm human. Now here's the kicker. Jesus was the Son of God, but he was human too. He had the capability of sinning just like we do. In his flesh, just like we do. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says, we have a high priest who is tempted just like we are. And he didn't sin. be really easy for me to say, yeah, but he didn't have pass road either. He had every temptation and opportunity to sin just like we do. And at every opportunity, he chose obedience to the Father first. So we need to step up to the plate. We need to quit playing church. We need to quit playing Christian. Why? Because we claim to be citizens of a kingdom that cannot be Shaken. Natalie had some great examples. For this location on Pass Road, just over the last 50 years, right? That covers Camille. Just over the last 50 years, all of the things that have happened just here on the coast where we are, Now, before I get to that conclusion, let's look at what the text actually has to say. Because the writer of Hebrews says, You, his readers, have not come to what may be touched. What's he talking about? He's talking about Mount Sinai. He's talking about the Exodus. He's talking about when those Hebrews that had come from from Jacob's family... Right, those, those sons of his that Joseph was able to save when they had spent 400 years in Egypt in slavery and in idolatry, they barely knew the name Yahweh. 
they barely had an idea of who God was. We know that Abraham knew God, right? God spoke to him on a number of occasions. We know that Isaac knew God. God spoke to him on a number of occasions. We know that Jacob knew God. God wrestled with him. And we know that Joseph knew God. But it had been 400 years since Joseph. They may have heard some of the stories, but they were not much more than myths. They were not much more than fairy tales. They may even have considered Yahweh to be just another one of the pantheon of gods that the Egyptians worshipped. Just another name. I think about uh, Paul when he's in uh, Athens, right? When he goes to the Areopagus and he's talking about all the, the worshiping that they do. They're obviously very, very, very spiritual people, right? Because there's a statue to everybody. There's even the base of a statue that says to the unknown God. We don't know who he is, but we got a place for him just in case. That's what the, that's what the Jews felt about God. At that point. Now I know the beginning of Exodus says that they were being oppressed and they cried out to God. They cried out to anybody. (laughs) They cried out for deliverance. They cried out to whoever's listening out there. They were broadcasting on all frequencies. If there is a God out there that's got the power of getting us out of this mess, please do it and we'll be your followers forever. The difference is, Yahweh heard them because he's the only God. The rest of them are all made up figments of our imagination. Now, if you want to know, flip on your head something that you've probably read a hundred thousand times before. If you want to know why I say that they probably didn't know anything about God as the covenant God of Israel, right? When when Moses is in the backside of the Midianite desert, tending his father-in-law's sheep, minding his own business at the ripe old age of 80 years old, right? When all of a sudden he sees a bush on fire and he goes up to it and the bush is on fire but it's not burning, Like it's not being consumed, there's no ashes, there's no embers, there's no popping and sparks, it's just there's a flame and a bush co-located in the same spot. And when God says, take your shoes off, you're standing on holy ground, I'm going to send you to my people to to bring them out of their bondage in Egypt. What is Moses' response? Yeah, who's sending me? What name do I give them? Do I tell them that Ra sent me? Is this Anubis? God says, no, 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 I am that I am. Tell them that the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob has sent you. They may have been his covenant people, but they weren't monotheistic. And so Moses goes back, and we know the story of the Exodus. I love the story of the Exodus because it's just one of those gripping you know, the, the battle between God and man, the battle between God and evil is just, it's so powerful there in the story. And, and finally, after the Passover, the Egyptians, they don't just let the Hebrews leave. They forcefully invite them to get out. They pay them to leave. Here, take all of my gold, take all of my sheep, take all of my daughters. I don't care. Go away. We can't take the plagues anymore. And so it is estimated that roughly two to four million people left Egypt in the Exodus. That's more than the population of Mississippi. Left Egypt all at one time. Brings a whole different picture to Moses standing there at the edge of the Red Sea with his arms up. You know, we've all seen the movie, right? The Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston, that powerful, because he looks to be 80 years old, doesn't he? Yeah, he's like 42 in that film. And he's standing there and the, the sea is parted and the people are passing. Do you know how long it takes 
two million people to pass? It's no wonder he had to have help holding his arms up. I've been here for like 35 seconds and my shoulders are screaming. He had a stick in his hand. They start their journey to the promised land. Just point of reference. Does anybody know approximately the distance of the time it would take to travel the distance between Egypt and Canaan? Uh-huh. Two weeks. It's a two-week journey on foot. Two weeks. They get across the Red Sea. They're out in the wilderness for like six hours, and all of a sudden everybody's complaining. Oh, Moses, you brought us out here to die. Can you imagine two weeks of that? Halfway through the journey, they stop at Mount Sinai. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about here in verse 18. They stop at Mount Sinai, and at the top of this mountain, there is like the embodiment of every severe thunderstorm, tornado warning, hurricane, just sitting at the peak of the mountain, the thunder, the lightning, the crashing, the booming. Great, Moses, what's going on here? And then God speaks. And they're absolutely terrified, shaken to their core. Why? Yeah, God is holy. People are not. And when you hear God's voice, think about when Moses is up on the mountain, after he receives the Ten Commandments from God, after he receives the law, he says to God, please show me your glory. And God says, I can't do that. Because my holiness is so great, it would burn you to a crisp because of your unholiness. To put it in a different phrase, Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah has a vision in the middle of the night. He's asleep at the lowest point of Israel's history. King Uzziah died. King Uzziah has been called the JFK of Israel. He was the most popular king. He was very charismatic. He was very loved. Everybody loved him. He died. And Isaiah has this vision. He says, I saw God's throne room. And the train of God's robe, which is is speaking about the, the glory that he is robed in, right? That's how it's described in Exodus too. The train of his robe fills the temple. Fills it with glory. And off to each side of the throne where the Almighty is sitting are these burning beings who are crying out in antiphonal response, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah says, "Uh Uh-oh. I am undone. I am toast because I am unclean. And I'm from an unclean people. And if I'm glad this is a vision because if it happened in real, I would be a little puddle of ash on the floor. The people standing around the mountain were terrified because just the presence of God's holiness on that mountain showed them the depth of their unholiness. Why is it whenever you read in Scripture, when somebody is visited by an angelic being, the very first words that the angel says are, do not be afraid. Because anytime we encounter the holy in our lives, our gut reaction is to be afraid. They begged Okay, they, one week into the trip, 
where they had been complaining to Moses. Okay, number one, Moses, you brought us out here to the, the edge of the Red Sea so that we could be killed by the Egyptians. And then uh, God delivers them. They cross over on dry land, and then the Egyptians are swallowed up into the sea. Six hours later, they're walking through the desert. Okay, great, Moses, you brought us out here to die of thirst. We don't have any water. And God provides water. And about a day later, okay, Moses, you brought us out here to starve to death. And God provides manna, right? At every turn, they get to the mountain. Okay, Moses, now God's going to kill us. Don't let him speak to us again, please. Talk to him. We're afraid. Even Moses, even Moses, who's had conversations with the Almighty, said that it made him tremble with fear. But the writer of Hebrews says, you have not come to this. Why do we need to strengthen ourselves and get about the business of doing what God has commanded? Because this isn't our lot. Why does he want us to stop playing church and start being the church? Because we are God's chosen people. And we're in a place that's way different than national Israel was at that point in time. Standing at the foot of Mount Sinai about to receive God's law. We are in a vastly different place than they were. See, because we, as the church, we have come to Mount Zion. We have come to God's kingdom as citizens. The nation of Israel, they were God's chosen people. They were His covenant nation, but they were not citizens. They were not adopted as children yet. Because they were still so far in their sin. And there was yet at this point in their minds, no redemption. None. But for us, we come to the kingdom and there's angels partying. And we're told that the angels rejoice when a a sinner is saved. Right? There are the saints who have gone before, who are already in their eternal place with God the Father, with Jesus the Son, and with the Holy Spirit. Spiritually speaking, we're coming to a homecoming. We come to this place place on the basis of the new covenant, mediated by Christ. The price is paid. Where national Israel came to the place of the holy God in abject terror and trembling. I mean, even if we fast forward to Jerusalem, to the temple, to the holy place and the holy of holies, where the the priest was commanded to burn incense once a year. The priest who's been consecrated, who is set apart, who who is just, he's dedicated to this task. He was still... So terrified that his robe had bells tied to it. And he went into the Holy of Holies with a rope tied around his waist and his fellow priests standing outside the curtain holding on to that rope. Did you all know that? Do you know why? Because if he did anything counter to what was commanded, if he had not repented from one sin, as he went to light that incense, God would strike him dead. The bells would jingle as long as he was breathing. And if the folks outside the curtain heard those bells stop, start pulling, they'd pull the corpse out. We don't have to worry about that. As believers in Christ, our sin is gone. Paid for. As far as the east is from the west. East. 
west. How far east do you have to go for east to meet west? They don't. (laughs) That's not how east and west work. (laughs) You can go east for infinity, and it will never meet west. That's how far our sins are separated from us. That's not a license for us to sin, folks. That is a reality. We can buckle down and get to the work of the church because that terror is gone. That fear is gone. The weight of sin and condemnation is gone. I had Dave read that passage out of 1 Peter. We are a royal priesthood, a chosen race. We are now the priest. We can, we cannot just go into the holy of holies, but we can, spiritually speaking in our prayer life, climb up into the throne and sit on God's lap. But I gotta tell you, I would be really uncomfortable doing that if I knew that I had been disobedient. Think about your earthly parents, right? Oh, you've disobeyed your earthly parents. Your conscience, your upbringing, your guilt keeps you from enjoying their fellowship. When you're a kid, it's because you're afraid they're going to find it out. The same thing is true of us and our relationship with God. And this is the part we need to be particularly careful about. We need to pay particular attention to. This is where we can find ourselves in very uncomfortable situations if we're not careful. Now, before I go there, and and by the way, we are here now looking at... um, Verse 25 that Natalie read, right? If you want to keep up with where I'm tracking. But before I get to verse 25, I want to point something out to you. I asked the question, who all is in a Baptist church? Everybody raised their hands. Some of you very tentatively. I'm not sure why. Read the sign when you leave the parking lot. It's a Baptist church. Okay, as Baptists, there are certain beliefs that we hold in general congregationally and along with Baptists around the world that kind of make us Baptists, right? We call those our Baptist distinctives. And when we put those distinctives together, they distinctly define what it means to be a Baptist. Very simple. One of those beliefs, whether you knew it or not, is the perseverance of the saints. Notice I said perseverance of the saints. What this means is that since salvation is 100% God's work, okay, how much do you contribute to your salvation? The answer is zero. The only thing you contribute to your salvation is the need for it, okay? You read Ephesians 2, chapter uh, uh, chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10, right? Because you always got to read 10. It tells us that even the faith that we have, everything that we have is a gift from God. We don't give anything. We don't cause our salvation. We respond to our salvation. God births us again, John chapter 3, right? Those You must be born again to see the kingdom of God, right? So God, the Holy Spirit regenerates us and causes us to be born again, And we respond in faith. That's how salvation works. Since God does the the born-again part, because I can't be born again on my own volition, right? Since God does the saving part, Bill doesn't do any of it. That salvation is irrevocable. It cannot be revoked. I've said this a number of times to y'all, and I know Danny has said it a number of times. There is absolutely, positively, abs- beyond the shadow of a doubt, nothing that we can do as human beings that is ever going to cause God to say, well, I didn't see that coming. And if that's the case, 
if God saves me here, it's because he's already seen my entire life. And he chose to save me anyways. That means that, that three weeks from now, I can't do something that causes God to say, well, I didn't know he was going to do that. I don't want him. That's not how salvation works. That makes God to be a schizophrenic. What we can do is we can walk out of fellowship. What we can do is we can walk out of obedience. What we can do is deceive ourselves. Once a person is well and truly saved in God's sight, they're saved, period. It's done. They can sin and they can sin really bad, but it doesn't change God's mind. Now, a lot of people call this once saved, always saved. I don't like that. Because when we say once saved, always saved, we have this, we, we man, people are weak. Our minds are weak. We, we think about things, we're short-sighted, we, we just, we don't put enough energy into using our brains. Right? When I say once saved, always saved, I think about a person who walked the aisle, said a prayer with the preacher, maybe took a dip in the, in the baptistry back here, joined the church, became a member, they're saved. Can I tell? No, I can't. Now, we've got the fruit of the Spirit. We're supposed to be able to judge a tree by its fruit, right? We're supposed to be able to know. And, and we are told when we're dealing with church discipline that if somebody sins, then we go to them one-on-one. And, and if that doesn't work, then we take a couple of witnesses. And then if that doesn't work, then we bring it before the elders of the church. And if that doesn't work, then we bring it before the entire church. And we treat them as an unbeliever. Right? So what that means is the entirety of the church can be fooled. Every one of us can be fooled by a person's behavior. We can think that a person's saved. I can, I can think that I'm a giant chicken too, but it doesn't change reality. Put me up on a 40-foot elevation and I'll show you what a giant chicken looks like. Because that's what I'm a giant giant chicken. But salvation is in God's perspective. If I see somebody who I thought was saved, who is now living a life that looks completely and utterly unregenerate, unsaved, reprobate, as terrible as terrible can be, did they lose their salvation? No, I was fooled. There's an example... Uh, and, I, and I bring all of this up because of the warning in verse 25. Do not refuse him who is speaking. Who's speaking? God. Telling us what he expects of us. Do not refuse him. Why? <laughs> because those who refused him failed to escape. They didn't listen to Moses. They didn't listen to the law. They didn't listen to the prophets. They didn't listen to Joshua. They didn't listen to David. They didn't listen to Jesus. They didn't escape. How much more are those of us who hear God directly, okay? They had mediators. They had Moses writing down the book of the law. They had the prophets speaking, thus saith the Lord. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling within, telling us, don't do that. You shouldn't do that. Don't, don't, don't. And we do it anyways. How much more are we going to get punished? Remember Ananias and Sapphira? That couple from the book of Acts? You may disagree with me entirely, and that's, that's your right. But reading that account in the book of Acts, I am convinced that they were most likely truly believers. They were probably real, honest-to-goodness, saved people. But they sinned. And their sin had such a dramatic impact on a young church. I mean, we're talking just months into the post-Pentecost era of the church. Their sin had such a profound impact that God plucked them out of the church and, and basically gave them a fast pass ticket to heaven. When Ananias came before Peter and said, here's all the money I got for selling my property, 
Peter said, really? Ananias, it was your property, wasn't it? And when you sold it, all the money that you got was your money, right? So why are you lying to God? Why are you, why are you presenting a false witness directly violating one of the Ten Commandments. Why are you doing this? Why, why are you trying to be proud and boastful? Why didn't you just say, hey, here's 90% of what I got. Here's 50% of what I got. Here's my 10%. Why'd you make up a story? Because you lied to God, not to us. End of story. And then Sapphira came in a couple hours later. Hey, how much did you guys get for that property you sold? Oh, it was this much. Really? See, we can sin so bad, even as true believers, that God may go, okay, that's enough. You're with me now. Now, that doesn't really seem like a discipline, does it? That really doesn't, that doesn't seem like a bad thing. I get to skip to the front of the line and go to heaven. How is that discipline? Well, remember, once we get there and our works are judged, right? All of our, all of our deeds are going to be judged. That's the, that's the, uh, the, the second judgment, right? We have the, the, the judgment that leads to salvation where the sheep and the goats are separated. And then we have the second judgment where all of the stuff that we did with our salvation is judged. All the saved people are going to be in line and all of our works are going to be presented before us and they're going to be passed through what, like, like a fire. And all of the good stuff is going to come out like gold and silver and precious gems. And all of the bad stuff, all the sin, is going to come out of that fire like wood, hay, and stubble. How do wood, hay, and stubble come out of a fire? As ash, and they get blown away. And so all the good stuff is going to be left in this big shining clump of metal and jewels, and all the bad stuff is gone. And if the majority of your life was made up of the bad stuff, even though you were saved, that means the good stuff is going to be... Do you know what Scripture says we're going to do with the good stuff? We're going to fashion a crown out of it. Okay, so can you imagine being a believer who's in heaven and all of your works have just been judged and you got a grand total of like three and a half ounces of gold, silver, and precious gems that you're going to fashion into a, into a crown that's going to be about the size of a thimble... And then the next thing that says is going to happen is Jesus is going to walk by and we're going to cast our crowns at his feet. So in the meantime, you have like Billy Graham, right? <laughs> Who needs a dump truck. <laughs> so, so Jesus starts walking by and you're beep, 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 clang. And then you have... Doink. Yay me. Yeah, suddenly it doesn't seem like such a great thing to be standing before the holy God as a believer who has decided to sin so bad that God said, you know what, I need you to just leave my church alone for a while. Back to the passage. God's voice shook the earth. God's voice shook the Israelites. And here it says that He will shake the earth and the heavens. And the, and the writer interprets that for us, and he says the things that are shaken this time are things that are going to be removed, destroyed. And the only stuff that's going to be left is the stuff that cannot be shaken. Now, full disclosure, some of you were probably a little bit frustrated, I'm not going to say upset, with some of my uh, statements on Wednesday night. And you may have been wondering if I said, you know, when I said at the beginning of this that I thought the 4th of July was a great day for this message. Um, if I had lost my brain, we didn't sing the national anthem. We didn't say the Pledge of Allegiance. We didn't have the... I don't know if anybody noticed. The flag's not in the corner anymore. 
We didn't have the banners up on the wall. We got the Christian flag up here. Some of you may have wondered if I've suddenly turned anti-American. I'm going to assure you that could not be further from the truth. I am the same person who has stood in front of a flag with my right hand in the air who has taken a solemn oath before God to defend this nation against all enemies foreign and domestic. No less than five times in the last 29 years. I wore the uniform of this nation for 20 of those years. And less than six months after I took that uniform off, I hired back on as a civilian in federal civil service to continue training up new people to wear that uniform and to protect and defend this country. I am not anti-American. However, 11 July 1998, roughly 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I became a man with a dual citizenship. Veterans Stadium, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Promise keepers. Forced by my father and my wife against my will to attend that conference. Orchestrated by God. Because I received my citizenship not in another nation, and I didn't revoke my citizenship in the United States, but I received citizenship in a kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom that cannot and will not be shaken. I can't say that about my United States. I have seen this country, I've been around for 47 years. I've been conscious of what happens in the world for probably 40 of those years. Okay? Just to be perfectly honest. I remember when Reagan got elected. Right? So that's, that's about as far back as it goes. I have seen this country shaken by natural disaster. I have seen it shaken by terrorist attack. I have seen it shaken by threat of nuclear war. I have seen it shaken by financial issues. I have seen it shaken by political maneuvering. I have seen it shaken and divided on some of the most shaky, miserable, poor, lousy, sinful excuses that you could ever hear. In fact, I would go so far as to say, why do we always see the United States flag blowing in the breeze? That's because it's always shaken. This nation is not permanent. This nation is not what we worship on the 4th of July. This nation, as great as it is, is a gift that's been given to us. It's a blessing. I'm happy for it. I am darn happy that I am a United States citizen. I am proud to be an American citizen. But I'm more proud to be a citizen of Christ's kingdom. Why Why did I say I didn't want the flag in the sanctuary? Why did I say I didn't want the national anthem or the Pledge of Allegiance or anything like that? Because think about this for a second. Why are we here We are here to worship the God of the universe, the creator of everything, the one who saved our souls. How appropriate is it for me to say, I'm worshiping God, but I'm going to pledge my allegiance to a nation? No. No, I pledge my allegiance to God. And as such, I support the nation that I'm in. As we're commanded to do, we pray for our leaders. Right? And that does not mean the imprecatory Psalms, God, please get them. That means when I pray for Joe Biden, I pray that God looks after his health. 
I pray that God looks after his mental capacity. I pray that God looks after his spiritual being and that somehow, somewhere, somebody is going to share the gospel with him and he's going to change and he'll be a part of the same kingdom. That's what I pray for my leaders. See, today's Independence Day, right? You know why it's Independence Day? Independence Day? Because we are now independent. We are, let me go back to the beginning of this passage. You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the heavens, uh, sorry, the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them because they couldn't endure the order that was given. But you, Christians, have come to Mount Zion. You're now members of the kingdom of God. We need to honor him. We need to worship him. And at the very end of this passage, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Why? Because our God, our God who commands, first commandment, Exodus chapter 20, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You will have no other gods before me. Not just in first place, in his presence. You will have no other gods before me. And I'm sorry to say, that for a lot of people in the United States, a lot of people that are filling churches right now, a lot of people in the sound of my voice, because I am broadcasting via YouTube right now, a lot of people view the United States as God. This country cannot, will not, has not ever provided anything for you spiritually other than a constitutional acknowledgement that God has given you the right to worship Him. They didn't grant that to you. They acknowledged it. And so, along with Scripture where it tells me, I don't need to fear those who can harm the body. Rather, I need to fear the one who can destroy the soul. I want to challenge us today. July 4th, Independence Day. Strengthen your hands. Strengthen your knees. Put off the sin, the shackles, the idolatry, the idolatry of self, the idolatry of national pride, the idolatries that slow us down and keep us from doing what God has commanded us to do. If you do a little bit of internet research, you will find that the vast majority of nations who have rejected Christian missionaries from the West, Western Europe and the United States, have done so because along with Christ, they also brought nationalism. When we carry the gospel to people, we, all, we, we participate in Operation Christmas Child, right? OCC, shoeboxes. Everybody does shoeboxes in here, right? Pack them shoeboxes, fill them with love, fill them with toys, pray for those kids. Do you know what goes into those shoeboxes? The gospel. Do you know what it says about the United States? Nothing. You know what it says about democracy? Nothing. Do you know what it says about any political or economic system? Nothing. Because in the grand scheme of God's eternity, none of that matters. Sharing the gospel is the gospel on its own. Loving people comes without political flavor. Declare your independence today from the sins that drag us down. 
And let's start listening to that voice that tells us what we're required to do. Love God with all your being. Love your neighbor as yourself. Be a witness, not a passive witness who just watches the world go on around them, but an active witness who tells people what God's done in their life. And go make a difference for Christ. I'm going to invite everybody to stand up.